and welcome to this week's Frankly Golf podcast. I'm Valerie Melvin here with Frank Thomas and I'm very excited about this week's podcast, Frank, podcast number 12, because this week we're going to be talking about driver designs for distance. Ooh, how exciting. (laughs) The magic word in marketing. Yeah, well, you know, I was actually thinking about it the other day and I thought, you know, we talk a lot about trying to help golfers putt better and everybody kind of understands what better putting is. You know, it's like getting the ball in the hole more often. Right, right, right. <laughs> In general. Right. Um, but, you know, you think about better driving. Uh-huh. And when you think about, you know, if you went to someone and said, I want a lesson to, to drive better, I think you would really, what you're actually saying is, I want to hit the ball farther. That's right. I mean, it's not necessarily straighter, is it? No, no. No. Hey, you want, want to hit the ball farther. But, I mean, like just as an aside from this particular podcast, I really think that accuracy in driving is so important because if you can just get it on the fairway, even if it's a little bit shorter than your playing partner's, you've got a better chance of getting it on the green than if they're 10 yards ahead of you and chopping about in the rough. And not only that, but if if you're using a shorter driver and staying in the middle of the fairway, on average, your drivers will be longer. Because, you know, when you, if you're hitting it all in the woods, uh, then, then, then that's no, no good. So, yeah, and uh, you, lose, you lose confidence, don't you, if you're uh, not accurate. Right. But you can brag about that one 275-yard drive over a big, long bunker that you've never been able to drive over before. And you've got bragging rights for, for a week or more. And it's it's really a great moment that lasts for years. Yeah, and, and over, the drive over. gets longer over time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and many beers. Yeah, and it's sort of like a fish, isn't it? If you catch a fish, yeah. it grows over time. It does. <laughs> right. Anyway, so let's um, let's start chatting a little bit here about um, you know driver designs over time, and I'd like to go back to the. Um, the era of the feathery because I think that was sort of a fascinating time and I'd love to actually go out and hit a feathery and a hickory shaft but aside from that um, how far did people drive you know a feathery or the feathery ball I mean how far could they hit it well first of all uh, the the driver that was used uh, to drive the feathery was the, basically the long nose driver and uh, feathery was actually introduced in oh, invented in 1500 and uh, that, that sort of replaced the wooden ball. And uh, the first ball that was ever recorded of sales was a wooden ball in 1454 or thereabouts. So, but the feathery came in in 1500. And, um, you know, you could drive it uh, probably 150, 200 yards, although the the longest drive ever recorded with a feathery was uh, 361 yards. That was at St. Andrews. And the gentleman's name was uh, Samuel Masso uh, wow. uh, in St. Andrews. And that, that's, that's uh, I don't know what hole it was uh, recorded on, but that's about the length of the 18th hole. Yeah, must that's have, amazing. Must have been a hurricane downwind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, the, the, the long nose clubs were really sort of wooden clubs made of a hard wood, right? Yeah, an apple or something hard wood. And then they had a shaft that was attached to that and, wasn't necessarily a hickory shaft at the time, but some other 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 wood, and then they they were spliced together, and uh, once they were spliced together, they were bound, uh, wrapped. Uh, the splice was wrapped, and it was rather wrapped with actually with leather 
or generally with a twine of sorts. Right. Uh, and that's how they how they made the club. And and then to protect the club, because the club didn't last that long, and to protect the club, they had to have an insert, and they had inserts of 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 uh, bone or leather or uh, even um, uh, metal. Uh, yeah. Certainly, on some of the those those uh, early clubs, they had to have a metal, almost a metal sole plate as well to protect them. Well, it's very interesting. But I mean, I suppose from in our era, we sort of think about wooden wooden club heads, and we think about persimmon woods. I mean, they were sort of the gold standard, weren't they? Yes. Uh, well, the, the 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 design, the club head design evolved, uh, and there's the heads were, were eventually carved. Uh, and and uh, when in 1924, when they when the steel shaft came in, it was eventually approved at the USGA. It was inserted a board into the head, and that that was in the neck of the of the wooden head was wrapped uh, again with 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 twine to to reinforce the the neck, and uh, those those heads were actually carved uh, using a, a machine that was uh, designed to carve uh, the butts of of uh, rifles, wow. rifle butts or rifle stocks, and uh, I remember as a matter of fact. Uh, Actually, not working. I, I didn't actually work the machine, but I, we had some uh, clubs would we be made. The first clubs I saw being made uh, that uh, I was working with was uh, we used one of those machines, and you had a model of the of the of the wooden head uh, in one that they, that it followed it tracked that, and the other three, and you could carve three or four uh, heads at the same time. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And when was that, Frank? Like the nineteen sixties? That was in the nineteen sixties, correct? Yeah, when you were with Shakespeare, where right. you invented the graphite shaft. What right. a wonderful invention that was! <laughs> um, we are very <clears throat> grateful to you for that. Um, now, so we had the persimmon, and the persimmon was beautiful. I mean, it was sort of. I mean, it was there. Was it the wood that gave it the sort of cut, the beautiful colouring, Frank? I mean, did they apply any finishes? Oh to yeah, the wood? they were very. They did a lot of finishing on the on the those wooden heads, and they. They were, they were persimmon was a very good wood. It was hard wood, easy to carve, and then but unfortunately uh, the persimmon ran out. The good persimmon was hard to find, and so then they decided to um, use laminated wood. So they laminated these bits of wood. Even even then, after they were laminated, they still used those carving machines to carve them into the shape they had right. needed, and uh, the drivers and all the wooden heads were, were got done the same way and finished. And the finishing process was uh, was was tough, and and they really uh, had to look after your woods and the, and the beautiful finish that they had. And it was really sort of, was it sort of like more like an art? Oh, very much. And you know, you think back to the days, and maybe I'm going, I'm kind of moving back in time rather than towards the current day. But you think about you know the Forgan uh, workshop in St Andrews and all these famous club makers in and around the St Andrews area. I mean, they were literally, you know, making the shafts, making these beautiful club heads. It's got right. to have been quite a time. Well, in the Forgan's time, they, they, they were still making the long nose and the variations after that. Sure. Uh, and um, uh, they were they were very busy because, the as I say, the wood clubs didn't last for very long. Uh -huh. So, and unfortunately, that, that made... Uh, 
difficult to you know play or buy clubs because they they didn't like. But uh, eventually they became once the the persimmon came in and the steel shaft came in. Those those guys started losing their their particular position because our heads did last a little longer. And even the persimmon heads had inserts on them. They had either a you know a, a, a plastic insert and uh, and a, a, a reinforced uh, laminated insert, and they had even steel inserts. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose the first metal woods. I mean, when did they start being introduced? About the nineteen sixties, would that be about right? Uh, well, it was yeah, probably in the in the in the uh, early sixties when when uh, metal woods they're made of aluminium there because and carved out, and the the sole of it was carved out. Wasn't a very good club, and you know it was very, very difficult to hit, but it was very durable. Mm-hmm. And they used them on driving ranges. So they were the metal heads because they were renting out clubs on driving ranges, and, and they didn't look after them at all. The the uh, metal, the wooden clubs were were, were pieces of of art, and, and and like a good piece of furniture, you had to really look after it. Uh-huh. And it was really, I suppose, Gary Adams and TaylorMade that introduced the first um, hollow metal driver, which sort of changed the game, really, in terms of, you know, the, the, the drivers that we use today. Well, yes, once once we understood the investment casting process, which actually is a very old process, uh, investment casting, but once we perfected that for, for, wood, for uh, clubs, iron clubs, uh, and then in, then went from iron clubs into hollow metal woods, and they made the and uh, Gary Adams was the first uh, guy to start working with that and introduced it in in nineteen seventy nine something like that in nineteen seventy nine, and um, and it was made of of, of steel, and uh, it was terrible. The sound was terrible. You heard it. You heard it across the, uh, the golf course. I can remember. <laughs> Uh, and and uh, they called it the Pittsburgh persimmon. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah, I mean, I suppose Pittsburgh after the town. For those of who aren't familiar with um, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is well, a steel, steel was town, right? Yeah. Um, They'll come back and start manufacturing steel there again. <laughs> um, but the um, the initial, and I find this fascinating because we were we were looking at some of uh, your collection of clubs, Frank, of which you have many clubs. I just have to say, right. um, but we were looking at some of your clubs um, that you have, and you know the size of some of the heads and how the heads have grown over time. I mean the the initial tailor made was 120 cc's which that's right i mean is that that would be roughly a quarter of the size roughly of the the heads volume. that were in volume of yeah. what we're using now right uh the the biggest uh, wooden heads they call the whaler i think it was a wilson whaler was bigger than that uh, bigger than the uh than the the initial uh tailor made club the metal woods uh the manufacturer all the, all the manufacturers as soon as they uh, uh, Gary Adams came out with this this club. It did gain popularity because it was a, a shell, mm-hmm. and the shell gave them a, a sort of a, a high moment of inertia. All the weight was on the outside of the shell, giving it a very much more effective, or more forgiving when you hit it, and uh, it, it gained popularity very quickly. All the manufacturers started working with with the whole con- same concept of making uh, hollow metal metal woods. So to speak, and not only drivers, but the 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 other woods. Uh huh. And I mean, really, sort of, probably the most famous 
a driver after that was the Big Bertha in 1991, 200cc. Right. I mean, it seemed much bigger than that at the time, right. but I suppose it's all relative, isn't the it? The Big Bertha, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Big Bertha went. And then uh, uh, the thing was that they recognised the need to have a hollow metal driver, and that one was made of steel, and they, they recognised, they said, OK, well, let's make it bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, to make it even more forgiving. But there was a weight restriction. You, the weight was restricted to about 200 grams. And as it got too big, then it started collapsing. So that was the time when they introduced titanium. Titanium was as strong as steel, but very much lighter. So then be able to make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, the first, uh, then you know, Tatum, I mean, Callaway came out with their first big, great big Bertha. Yeah. And that was about 200 and, I think about 290 cc's, uh, which was uh, fairly, very, I mean, that was a great big Bertha. a huge increase. Huge, right. Um, And I mean, I'm just um, thinking, you know, the last person to win a major with a wooden head was was Bernard Langer. Bernard Langer in 1993. The Masters, the Masters in 93. I mean, so it shows you really how, how it sort of, you know, died around that time, you know, 93, then, you know, through sort of 95, the the Great Big Bertha sort of came right. in and took over that type of design with the titanium heads. Right. And and the Great Big Bertha was the first club that had uh, a spring-like effect. They didn't even know it. They were trying to make a bigger head to make sure that they had a higher moment of inertia. But the face actually deformed and then recovered during that 350, 400 microseconds of impact. And that was what allowed them to allow them to get this little extra boost. Even though in 1984, this was 1995, 96, uh, even though in 1984, the rule was adopted that we wrote that you should, the, the club face shall not have the effect of a spring on impact. Uh, and that's just kind of interesting because the very first rule on equipment was in 1909, and that said the club shall be customary, traditional and customary in form and make, should be comprised of a head and a shaft, and they and shall have no contrivances such as springs. That was in 1909. So we went back to that concept in 1983 when we changed it and adopted the rule in 1984. Now, in spite of that, uh, the Callaway Great, Great Big Bertha had spring-like effect, but they didn't know it. And when we told them they had it, uh, they were surprised and said, no, we don't have it. We know what the rule is, but the Japanese have these, and you got to come down on hard on them. But we proved to, for the fact that they actually did have a spring-like effect. And now, you know, the, the US Genarine have introduced the COR rule, um, which somewhat limits the spring-like effect, but maybe not. Um, to the extent of it not having the impact of a spring. I mean, it's not gone that far, has no. it? No, well, it, it, it does have the effect of a spring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the rule says you can't have an effect of a spring. But uh, in 1998, uh, the USGA decided, well, let's uh, write a rule around the existing state of the art, and I was instructed to do that. Uh, and that was when we set a coefficient of restitution. In the, which is the, uh, the standard that we develop, and uh, to limit the the amount of, of, of spring-like effect in clubs. That uh, spring-like effect was uh, like saying, well, 
you know, the, the rule says you can't have a spring-like effect, but we'll give you a little bit. Right. It's like saying no smoking here, but six cigarettes is okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that was to compromise uh, the the and and come up with a a, a, a solution to you know the problem. Yeah. And and so that was where the rule was written. However, I think as you said, there's a certain limit to the amount of spring-like effect you can get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what's interesting about it is when you look at those, when we were looking at those clubs, um, you know, the actual, the size, just the volume, the size of the head is, is shocking, the actual, the hitting area. And I suppose maybe you can talk a little bit, Frank, about the dynamics of the head and the face and the things that designers have done to really optimise the, the launch conditions. Because I know, you know, the development of the USG's <coughs> indoor test range let us learn a lot more about, you know, actually the launch conditions um, of the club. Right. Well, in, in uh, was uh, earlier on in, in the probably 95 or thereabout, I started working on the indoor test range. We recognised the need to be able to measure very accurately the coefficient of lift and drag on a golf ball. And we didn't have that accurately over a wide range of, of spin and velocities. So uh, the indoor test range allowed us to do that. And once you could measure those properties, then you could predict how far the ball would go, giving in a certain velocity, ball velocity, certain spin rate, certain launch angle, you could predict exactly how far it would go. And then you could optimize that. So once you knew what the optimum launch conditions would be to get maximum distance, then you could then manufacturers recognize that. We actually sold the the technology to them uh, to allow them to ma- make these measurements on the aerodynamic properties of golf balls. And then once we they could do that, then they manufactured their golf clubs and and worked with the golf ball in combination to achieve those maximum launch conditions. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I think, you know, the the sort of the way they've designed the faces now allows them to almost the face to be more efficient all over the face rather than just in a particular area, is that correct? Right, right, because uh, what's happened is uh, the face the face design is face is somewhat separate from the club when it, when it's manufactured and either machined or or, or, or stamped or, or forged. Uh, but they they now being able to design it such that you get the uh, uh, as maximum spring like effect you possibly can f- as, as you progress away from the center of the club face, so you keep on growing, so sort of flattening that uh, that curve a little bit. But it's um, it is uh, interesting how the the cause of the club design has been modified. But still hitting it right on the sweet spot, you're still not going to be able to get any more than the coefficient of restitution limit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, on, good point. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, we must recognize that the USGA COR and the RNA COR limit on, on spring-like effect is like setting a standard uh, at, uh, saying to a, uh, and a speed limit for a car, saying we'll set us a limit of 95 miles an hour for cars. Cars uh, cannot speed more than other you're going over the speed limit of 95 miles an hour, when cars can't even be driven more than 100 miles an hour. I see, so I see. So the, the, the limit is there, but so what we're really looking at is Mother Nature or the laws of physics governing uh, basically how fast the ball is going to come off the club face. And we've actually flattened that curve. The curve wow. 
Flatten the curve. <laughs> Flatten the curve. Uh, the distance, you're not going to be able to get any more distance out of, out of a driver. Ah, uh, but there are a couple of secret ways, aren't there, Frank? Well, you can, you can, <laughs> la- you can lengthen the driver. Uh, that, that'll help you. Uh, but then you're not going to get, uh, you know, you're going to lose accuracy, lose control. And unfortunately, that's what some of the manufacturers are doing, lengthening the driver. Uh, but my, my strong suggestion is to get your, your maximum distance, overall average maximum distance, is to, is to shorten the driver, not lengthen it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Stay in the fairway. I always like your uh, your comment, Frank, when we talk about longer drivers and we look at some of the, the exceptionally long drivers that they sell nowadays and, you know, the fact that they come with a, a, a snake bite kit, That's which right. is quite useful here in Florida, especially <laughs> if you end up in the woods, right? <laughs> <laughs> which is going to be there a lot of the time. Right, exactly. Right. Now, that is, is the case. However, you know, I, I do think that, that we learn... We'll, we'll find our, our, the most efficient driver to use. And uh, yes, we got bragging rights for long distance, and that's with sales clubs. But in actual fact, we need to keep it in the fairway more often, and the average distance will be longer. You know you know how long Jack Nicholas's driver was? I, I do know, but I can't remember. It's at 43 and 5 eighths inches. There we go. And that was with a persimmon head. A steel shaft, and he was using a wound ball, and he still was able to drive the ball uh, 350 yards. Yeah, almost as far as our friend Samuel Masso in St Andrews with a Fenery, right? In, <laughs> back, back in the days. Yeah, when, back when in the days, 1836. 1836, right. Well, um, I, I, the one thing I think that's really useful is to just try to just grip down on your driver. Grip down a couple of inches and see how it works for you. I think it's a very good idea. Don't don't go and cut cut the shaft two inches off and, until you've tried it. So grip down on the driver a couple of inches and start hitting it smoothly. Get good rhythm. Keep your head down, and and you will find that you're actually probably staying in the fairway more often. And once you do that and gaining your confidence, you'll probably drive the ball a little further because you're not trying to kill it. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward, Frank, to taking that old Shakespeare driver out next week with the uh, the graphite shaft in it. Right. Give it a little bash right. and uh, we'll, we'll let everyone know how we get on, right? Right. <laughs> but until next week. May the frog be with you. <laughs>